Alright, so if you got your Bible, I want to walk through these passages with you that is verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5. So we've got to grasp what happens in chapter 4 verses 14, 15, 16 to really be able to know what in the world is happening as we get into chapter 5 verses 1 through 10, the passage we're going to cover today. In verse 16 of chapter 4, we get the imperative, like the thing where he says, okay, in light of all this, here's what I need you to do. And that thing where he says this is what you need to do is actually the things you just did. The whole idea and the whole reason behind him saying, we have this great high priest, he tells you this so that you will approach him. And that having approached this Jesus who is this new great high priest, you would receive grace and you would find this mercy that he longs to give you. What the pastor to the church in Hebrews is gonna do now in chapter five is continue to explain to you why that's something you should do with every aspect of who you are that you should never stop doing and you should continue to do that boldly because he's going to explain to you more and more of Jesus' heart as this high priest. Let's read it. Verses one through 10, chapter five, still in Hebrews. This is our passage for today. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for the sake of the people. Verse four, and no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was. Verse five, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is a word for today. I'm gonna lean in and discover what God has for us. Let's start with chapter one, or verse one. For every high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God and offer gifts and sacrifice for sin. Do you guys mind if I teach a little bit today? Like I'm gonna have to be a little bit less preacher. I might not yell, I might not sweat. It's really cool and calm in here, but I'm gonna have to teach you some things, okay? I'm gonna teach you some stuff, so bear with me. I'm gonna have to teach you, all right? And And I hope that you long to learn stuff just as much as you long to feel stuff, all right? So we're gonna learn some things today. What the pastor of the Church of Hebrews is doing right here is he's setting up a chiasm. What a chiasm is, is he's, he's taking some things about what an earthly priest was and he's mirroring them in the exact opposite and the exact reflection of who Jesus is. So it kind of flows in this way. So verses one through four is showing you who the earthly priest was and then the rest of the passage is showing you who Jesus is and they parallel and compare and contrast with each other. The reason he's doing this is to, again, continue to shine a light on who Jesus is as this great, approachable, merciful, sympathetic priest. So he's talking about human priests here, these people who would intercede between God and man. He says, first of all, all of these priests, and this is one of the things that Jesus has in common with any priest that came before Jesus, he's saying all of these priests didn't submit a resume to become this. 
They had to be assigned and appointed by God. So that's what he's saying there. A reminder for all of us, a priest, that's someone who represented God before men and men before God. Up until the point of Jesus busting on the scene, God instituted humans to do this role. And through this one specific line of his chosen people, the line of Aaron. That's why the the tribe of Levi, the Levites, were the priestly line. Now, what the author is going to show us through this is Jesus is the fulfillment. Everything that happened in the Old Testament in their priestly order finds its now fulfillment in Jesus. What he's making, and he's going to do this again through the book of Hebrews, is what's called a lesser than to greater than argument. And this is what he's doing here in this passage. Let's keep going on. He's going to continue to talk about the human, the, the God appointed, but yet still human and sinful and fallen men who were high priests. He said, these guys who are priests, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, don't just think you've got out skate free because he's like, oh, that's how people used to be. They used to be ignorant and wayward. You guys ever met any ignorant and wayward person? Yeah, me too. I see one in the mirror most mornings. So when he says that this priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, He's showing these people that this ignorance and waywardness is the human condition, which hasn't changed since the garden and the fruit was bitten and hasn't changed right now as we sit in McDonough. We are still ignorant and wayward. And what he's doing here by describing these two different things of ignorance and waywardness is describing usually the two ways sin manifests itself in our life. You've seen this in your kids. You've seen this in yourself. Some of your sins, they're just because just straight up ignorance. Like, I just didn't even know. I didn't even realize that was a mistake until I did it. Fellas, these are the sins your wife tells you about that you didn't even know you committed, but she lets you know, right? You very can track with. Those are the sins of ignorance. It's like, I just, I was out here trying to do good. And then I realized I wasn't. And I, thank goodness, had people tell me about that, you know? Those are the sins of ignorance. Those are the ones that either other people are gonna tell you or you're gonna pray a really bold and brave prayer that goes something like, God, will you just show me where I have not been living up to your standards. And then God's like, how long you got, big fella? Let's go. (laughs) And then there's the opposite end of that, that are the wayward sins. These are the sins that are not the sins of omission or the sins of ignorance. These are the sins of arrogance and pride where you go, I know this is not the right thing to do, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's what I want to do. And he's saying these earthly priests, they are able to deal gently with these people who are both ignorant and arrogant Because the priests are the same way. That's why he says they are beset with weakness. This is why we see what we see in the next verse. These priests, when they would come in on what's called the Day of Atonement, every one of these priests had to offer his own sacrifice for his own sins before he could offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people, for the sins of the whole entire group of the Israelites, the whole Jewish people. And so he would offer, uh, he would bring in, as he was getting ready to go into the Holy Holies, he brings in a whole bull. So just picture this priest in his robe and he's got this big get up and he's just carrying this bull. And it's a bad day for the bull. And he comes in and he sacrifices the bull. He does that to cover all of his sins. And the people actually get a smaller animal, which I don't know if that should tell you something. Like he gets a bull, they get a lamb. Like, I don't know. That's, that says something about pastors, so pray for us. I don't know. Um, He does that. He does that for the people. Again, he has to offer sacrifice. And again, he's setting up this whole argument so you're able to see and compare and contrast the differences between the priests that were human and Jesus is the God-man priest who is the great high priest. It goes on in verse four. He says, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Again, the same point I've already made. God is the one who puts these priests in their place. We don't do that. Now, 
what you're gonna see now as he gets ready to compare and contrast these human priests to Jesus as the great high priest are these three things. He's gonna put them on these lines. You're gonna see that both of them, you're gonna see both Jesus as the high priest and the other high priest, they had to be selected. You're gonna see their solidarity with the people they represent and you're gonna see the sympathy in which they have on them. Hopefully you're able to see that already as you saw in the passage before. He's saying God is the one who selected them. There was solidarity. This guy who was the priest, he sinned. That's why he had to offer sins. He's in solidarity with the people. He himself is beset with weakness and that's why he was says, uh, he was able to have sympathy on them. He was able to deal gently. He has sympathy on them because he knows what it's like to be a sinner down here on earth as well. Now, what he's gonna do from here on out in this passage is show us how Jesus has these same things. He's gonna compare and contrast what the human high priest has and doesn't have in common with Jesus, the true great high priest. All right, let's go through it. Everybody tracking so far? All right, cool. Good deal. So also, Christ did not exalt himself. So he's saying, hey, the same way the priest didn't exalt himself to be a high priest, Jesus did not say, God, um, I got a great idea. Let me become a great high priest. No, that's not how it happened. He did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. This is the author to the church in Hebrews going back and pulling a reference all the way out of the book of Psalms. It was written years and years before to say, this is what this passage was pointing to, that our father from the very beginning had appointed his begotten son to be the intercessory between mankind and divinity. He goes on, he continues to make the same point. He also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which if you're looking for baby names, great one right there, probably a boy name. Melchizedek, all right? Now, <clears throat> I'm gonna just briefly, briefly introduce this guy Melchizedek to us, all right? The reason I'm just gonna briefly introduce it is if you flip a couple of pages forward, you'll see chapter seven, and chapter seven just talks about Melchizedek forever, all right? And so I'm really looking forward to nerding out on you when we get there in a few weeks. Let me just briefly introduce this so you understand what he, the point he's trying to make. Melchizedek is a seemingly obscure but still important priest who shows up in the book of Genesis. Um, you guys remember Abraham? He's the one who God chose, chooses to be Father Abraham, you know, had many sons. That guy, this Father Abraham is going to bail his nephew Lot out of some big trouble that Lot got into. And he's coming back from bailing his nephew Lot out of some trouble. And as he's coming out, a priest goes to meet him. This priest is named Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a priest, but he is not from the tribe of Levi, order of priest. You know why? Because that doesn't even exist yet, okay? That hasn't been even set up. But this guy Melchizedek is a priest who precedes even the priesthood, which again, I'm gonna explain a lot more of this in a second, or in a few weeks. Also, the Bible tells us in Genesis that Melchizedek is not just a priest, he is a king. And he is, it says there in Genesis that he is a king of this place called Salem. Do you know what the word Salem means? He's the king of peace. So here in this guy, Melchizedek, track with me. This is why he's referencing it back here and saying that Jesus, as a great high priest, is a priest in the order of Melchizedek because Jesus is a priest who did not come from the line of Aaron. If you go back and you trace Jesus' genealogy, it is not from that tribe. Jesus is not actually born from the priestly tribe as far as all the 12 tribes of Israel go. The other side of that, and this is what he's pointing to in Melchizedek, is Jesus is not just a priest. Jesus, like Melchizedek, is a priest and a king. He's the king of peace. 
That's why he's making this point. He's again saying this has been God's plan from all along that Jesus would be this one who would represent his people in this way. And he's, I love it because he's taking all these Old Testament things. He's showing, it, he's showing it to his congregation and going, don't you see how all these puzzle pieces fit back together? Verse seven. Now he really starts to lean into Jesus and talks about his sympathy and his solidarity with us. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Let's see if we can find those S words we're looking for. Right there at the very beginning, we see his solidarity with us. We see the fact that he knows what it's like to be us because Jesus had days of his flesh the same way you have days of your flesh. Now, what that doesn't mean is that Flesh in like the fallen sinful side, like when you start having like bad days and you're falling temptation, you're just like, my flesh is acting up. That's not what that means. When it says in the days of his flesh, we have to understand and realize Jesus existed before he showed up in a manger in Bethlehem. From eternity past, he was with God. And as he was in eternity with God, from the very beginning, from the creation of the world, what he had not yet experienced was human flesh. So as Abraham is doing all these things that Abraham's doing, Jesus is not experiencing human flesh. As Moses is parting the Red Sea, Jesus is in heaven, has not experienced human flesh. When Jesus experiences human flesh, when he has his days of the flesh, is when he is entered in through the womb of a virgin, there in a manger in Bethlehem, grows up around the Nazareth area and lives the life that he lives. Those are the days of his flesh. Now, what you need to understand, this passage is gonna break this down a little bit more, is up until that point, what had Jesus not done yet? He had not suffered. He had not experienced what it feels like to navigate pain, brokenness, and hardship. Because Jesus is where? Before he comes to earth, he is in heaven. There is no suffering there, there is no pain. There's no people back-talking you. There's no people talking behind your back. There's no lies being taught. He is in heaven, perfect existence with the Father God. So in the days of his flesh, it says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Now, I don't know about you, but there's just something about that passage that I hope is a, when you flip through the images you get of Jesus and how he deals with us as sinners, I hope you see Jesus doing this. Jesus weeping, Jesus crying out. Like I, I get this image. I don't know if you've ever been to one of these funerals. I've only had like one or two times in my whole entire life where I have felt this exact same way where you're crying so loud that you're screaming. It's what you hear in the movies and maybe you've hopefully never experienced this in real life, but it's what you hear when, when the police show up at the mom's door and knock on the door. And the moment she sees the police at her door, she knows something's wrong. It's that moment right after they tell you your son is no longer with us, been a terrible accident, your son has passed away. That's what you should hear right here. Coming from Jesus. Not this, this Prozac just gliding through, hoverboarding around down in Nazareth, just you know hovering around through Galilee, healing people, telling stories, giving parables, blah, blah, blah. I want you to see and feel and experience a Jesus who is in the utmost feeling and connection as he prays out with loud prayers, cries, and tears. 
Now, you may see that and go, well, what in the world is he praying that way about? What in the world is he praying with loud cries and tears for? What is leading to that? And when does that happen? Was that just a one-time occurrence? Personally, I do not think this is a one-time occurrence. I think this is Jesus's prayer life. The reason I think that is because when you see, Eric referenced this a little bit ago, when you see Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane, which would be what I would say is the culminating moment of his prayer life with God the Father. He finishes the Passover feast and he comes into this garden, which I think was a place he had usually prayed before. And then he's down on, on hands and knees praying to the Father. The Bible gives us you know, beautiful detail in this story. It says that he is sweating, not like sweats that looks like drops of blood, but it literally says that he is sweating drops of blood. One of the gospel writers tells us that his, his prayer and his anxiety and the weight that was on him during this moment was so heavy that he would have died had not angels come and minister to him. And then when they come and minister to him, he doesn't go, okay, well, good, I made it out of that one. Let me just go and get a snack and get some you know, hydration, get my electrolytes back up. He keeps praying in this moment as he cries out to the Father. Now, the, the beautiful yet broken thing about this image that we get of Jesus in the garden is we know there what he prayed. We don't know all of his other prayers, but we do know this one. He said words like this, Father, if there is any way that this cup, this suffering that I'm getting ready to experience. If there's any way that this cannot happen, make that happen. I, 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 essentially, he's saying here, God, I want a way out. But more than, what I, more than me wanting a way out, I want your will to be done. Here on earth through my life, as me and you have willed it in heaven. Now, again, I still haven't answered that question of what is making him so emotional. Maybe it's my skewed way of seeing Jesus and his relationship with the Father through my relationship with my own earthly father. But the thing that stands out the most to me as I see this passage, and if you personally ask me, I'm sure there's maybe other things, but if you personally ask me, what is he so upset about? I would tell you, in my most humble opinion, the thing he is most upset about is losing the connection that he has with his father. That he is most upset about what the cross is going to bring and the divide that the cross is going to place between him and his heavenly father, who up until that moment has been in absolute perfect union with. The Bible tells us that the things that's, that's happening on the cross, it tells us that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus quotes Psalm 22 and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me there on the cross? There's, there's no other moments when Jesus has ever felt this way until there at the cross, he is suffering and he's taking the full punishment for my sin and your sin. He there on the cross is doing the priestly work as the priestly sacrifice. The lamb is being slaughtered and he is the priest who willingly submits that so that it can happen. So he's loud tears crying out, God, 
It's not that I'm afraid of a cross. There are so many Christian martyrs who died in ways that were worse than crosses. Jesus, hear me, Jesus is not afraid of dying. History after history of Christian history has people who are singing praise hymns as they go to be crucified, as they go to be burned at the stakes, as they go to die for their faith in Jesus. Jesus is not afraid of dying. He is afraid of a disconnect between his relationship and the Father. But the fear of the disconnect between him and the Father did not hinder him from continuing to stay fully submitted to the Father's will, knowing that he would suffer that great divide so that you could experience the great connection. He says, I'm willing to be treated like I am not your son so that they can be treated like they are your sons and daughters. I am willing to be treated as the world's unrighteousness so that the people, so that the rest of them can experience your righteousness, Father. I am willing to feel forsaken so that they, they come through me to you can know that they will never be forsaken if they are in me. This is why he cries. This is why he shouts. This is the heaviness that was on this savior who felt what I also think is deep within the heart of all of us. See, maybe you don't realize this or not, but you have a heavenly father. And, and, and track with me, and I'm sorry to go so deep on a holiday weekend. Let me just, I should have kept it really shallow for you guys, but I, I just I can't do that. It's impossible. If you trace whatever it is that you're suffering through, if you trace whatever burden it is that you're, you're, you're going through, I believe if you trace all that back to its deepest, most part, it's because you were created by heavenly father and you were created to be in perfect union and connection with that heavenly father. And what Jesus does is he says, I know what it was like to fear losing the thing I wanted the most. And I know what it was like to temporarily lose it. I did that so you could forever find it. So that in this heavenly father that I experienced temporary, albeit separation from, you could know that this heavenly father will never separate himself from you if you are in through me. Now that should be great news to any of us who you maybe relate to my story a little bit and you did not have an earthly father who is what you longed for and hoped for and prayed for that he would be. And even those of you in the room who have a great father who, who has given you this great example of what God as a father would look like, you look through them and you see past even their goodness to see the greatness of God who stands behind them that they represented to you. And in all of this, this is Jesus going, I want my people to experience what they need most, which is a love of the father. He says, I'm willing to go without it so that they can have it. And then this father, it says to him, he's praying, he's giving these loud cries to him, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, if you read that, you're like, if you read this back half of this passage after the yellow word tears, if you read this back half of the passage and you've never heard the gospel before, you come in, you're from far off different religion, you didn't grow up in the South, and you hear these words, and then somebody tells you that Jesus died on a cross, you're going, if this is all you've ever seen about Christianity and the gospel, and it says that he prayed, he cried out, he's able to save him from death because he was heard because of his reverence, you read that and you go, 
Well, surely he didn't die. He heard him because of his reverence. He was gonna save him because he, you know, cried out with all that. He prayed super hard. So the father said, all right, you don't gotta die. You're so reverent. You don't gotta die. If you have never heard the gospel, that's how you read that, right? Because he saved, he saved from death. This is what's wild about our gospel. You can be dead, but not experience death. It can be over and not over at the same exact time. See, what's wild about Jesus as a sinless savior is, is he dies and because he's sinless, the effects of death do not have a hold on him. That's why I love the gospel. I think the gospel's got this right. When Jesus rose from the grave, a lot of times we talk about that like we're like, oh, Jesus just got up one day after the time had passed. No, the father rose him from the grave. The father is counting down, knows exactly how long he had to stay there. The father is the one who lifts up his son. And the truth bound up in this for us is our Jesus went through death, not just suffered death. He goes through it. And because there was no sin found in him, death did not do what it was supposed to do. From the very beginning, the Bible made it very clear. It says, if you eat the fruit of this garden, you will surely what? The wages of sin is? But if you don't have that, you don't have that sin, then death is just a doorway into eternity. And you open that door, you blow through that door, you kick that door down for the sake of anyone who would come through you to follow. And that is exactly what Jesus did. Passage goes on in 5.8. He says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Which again, this is another one of those passages where if, you, if you're reading this with your brain turned on, you go, how does, okay, isn't Jesus like all-knowing? Does he know everything? Isn't he omniscient? I think that's the word for it, omniscient. I heard some pastor say that one time, omniscient. Don't say it very fast, omniscient. How does an omniscient, all-knowing God in Jesus learn stuff? And he learned obedience through what he suffered? Well, lean in. Up until the point that he comes and lives on earth and gets misunderstood and gets confused by people and gets betrayed by best friends and goes to a tool of Roman torture and is crucified on a bloodstained cross for me and you, up until those moments where he actually has the days of his flesh, what has he never experienced? Suffering. So this is a new thing. This is a, there is a learning curve down here because he's never experienced the pain and the brokenness and the hardship of this world. And again, that's what makes him not just a sinless savior, but a sympathetic savior to us. He's actually experienced it. Now track with me with those two S words, sympathetic and sinless. This is why you have to have a high priest who is both. If he is just sympathetic, but not sinless, he looks down at our broken condition and goes, that really stinks. I wish I could do something about it, but because I'm not sinless, I can't. The other side of that, if he's just sinless, but has never been here, experienced those things, has not been solidarity with us and walked through what we've walked through, he's sinless, but he has no sympathy. So he says, I could save you, but I'm perfect, I'm saved, but you can't be. Because I'm just perfect because I'm perfect. Not because I've walked through what you've walked through, been tempted in every single way that you've ever been and done all of that with absolute, utter perfection. So the way that Jesus becomes the source 
of our salvation is he's both sinless and sympathetic because he suffered everything that we could possibly suffer as well. And again, all of this is to point to approach with absolute confidence, both a sinless savior and a sympathetic one. The problem though, is this word through. See, that last passage, if you go back and you look at it, it says that he was saved through suffering. Most of the time when we go through suffering, we're not at, we're not, we don't pray things like, Father, just get me, like, I just wanna get through this. I know it's gonna be a journey. It's gonna be a process. I just wanna get through this. I want you to get through me, all that you wanna get through me as I go through this. We don't pray that. God, I'm in debt. Get me out of debt. <laughs> God, this marriage is tough. Fix it. Like, we don't want through, we want from. We are, we are asking God, save me from this. Save me from this job. These people are crazy. They're losing their mind. Save me from this church. Everybody's gossiping about it. Everybody else. Save me from. That's, that's our prayer. Save me from. Save me from. Save me from. Save me from this cancer. Save me from this ailment in my body. Save me from this broken. Save me from stuff. Instead, what we see is, is Jesus goes, no, 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 no. It was through. Now, this is, let me get, come down out of the clouds and, and get real life with you here for a second. When Jesus doesn't save you from what happens in here? If you're anything like me, when God doesn't save you from what you're in, whether it's abandonment, failure, anxiety, you name your thing, you know that thing right now, guys, you know that thing that you've asked and prayed for God to save you from. And when God doesn't, more often than not, we get disappointed in God. Now, let me talk to you about the spiritual warfare that's going on in the midst of all this. When we are begging and praying and asking, God, save me from, we don't get saved from that thing. Disappointment enters in. And the way that predators in the animal kingdom smell fear on their prey, our enemy smells. His nose is finely tuned to sniff out your disappointment in God. And the moment he sniffs out disappointment in your life towards something that God didn't come through for you the way that you thought God should come through for you. The moment he sniffs out that disappointment, he leverages that disappointment that you feel, throws his temptation on and says, this disappointment is a great excuse that will justify your disobedience of that God. You're disappointed that the, that the, the kid has not come back. So it's time for tough love. Shut them off. You're disappointed that the job doesn't provide what you need to provide. So beg, borrow, steal, lie, cheat, brown nose, do whatever you gotta do. Cut corners where you gotta cut corners so that you can get the amount of money that you need. This marriage feels like it's falling apart. God, I'm disappointed you haven't fixed this. So because I'm not getting my needs met here, I'm gonna go justify, go and find them being met somewhere else. We let our disappointments about God and how he hasn't saved us from justify our disobedience. And what if, what if we instead listen to the truth to say that disappointment doesn't justify disobedience, but disappointment is, is suffering. And disappointment is something that Jesus, I know this is hard, I know this is heavy, I know this isn't fun, but guys, remember, that's too mean, I shouldn't say that. Remember the God who we follow. All right, we believe in a, in a God, in Jesus, 
who was literally God's son. And he suffered and was brutally beaten on a cross. He lived a life as a homeless Middle Eastern man. Where do we get off thinking that this life is just gonna be sunshine and rainbows? Like some of you, you would be, you, our views of suffering on earth is sometimes way more in line with other world religions than it actually is Christianity. And, and honestly, as I've studied how Christianity affects people in the rest of the world, Americans are the ones who have this the worst. If you go to Africa, if you go to China, if you go to the Middle East where there's actually persecution for people's faith, they, they've got this. They rejoice, they click their heels that their faith would be counted worthy that somebody would punish them for it. But we get a little bit of something that doesn't go wrong or God doesn't just rescue us out, show us the escape rope and we're ready to throw it all in the towel. And, and, and I'm not, this is not me beating you up, this is me too. I, I've had this even, even this week of God going, seriously, I gotta do this for the rest of my life? You're, you've really called me to do this pretty much forever, it seems like. Will you let me know when I don't have to do this anymore? Again, I'm letting you into my prayers, my honest conversations with God. And so my, my hope is that we grasp who Jesus is. And this is what he continues to explain. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Again, this is one of those things that kind of causes us to scratch our head and go, I, I thought Jesus was always perfect. How was Jesus made perfect? Well, walk with me. It's, it's baseball weekend. We're all playing baseball. Baseball's a big deal right now. Braves are doing great. Keep praying for them. Um, <laughs> if Spencer Strider, next time he gets on the mound, I've given you this analogy for, if he, in the second inning, he has not given up any hits or any runs, what is he throwing, baseball people? Okay. If he gets into... The fifth inning, what is he throwing? If he has not given up a walk, a hit, any of that kind of stuff. He's throwing a perfect game. Now, is it a for perfect game in the fifth inning? No, but it is perfect still. When he says Jesus was made perfect, what he's saying there is Jesus made it all the way through his entire life because a perfect game becomes a perfect game when it is finished, which is why Jesus in the gospel of John cried out from a cross, it is finished. That was the moment in time where perfection was made. Perfection was accomplished, even though from the moment he let out his first little baby cry in a manger in Bethlehem, he was perfect. He was made a perfect substitutionary sacrifice for us once his life was given. So he was made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, what this means is, big truth for the day. If there is no suffering, there's no salvation. And again, like you've gotta get that this is Christianity. This is not Buddhism. This is not whatever other religion you, you, you wanna try out. This is not, if my good outweighs my bad, at the end, I'll make it. I was on the phone last night with my grandma. God bless her heart. She was nine years old. And she was just, she's, she's feeling the grief of just life on planet earth. And, and all of her sons are, are, are before her in heaven. Her husband, who she loves and spent so much of her life with, is before her in heaven. And she's kind of, she's just there. And she's saying, I just miss him. And, and I'm going, grandma, you're gonna see him again. 
And her words, and it kind of it broke my heart a little bit and I had to you know, preach to her a little bit in a loving way as much as you can to your grandma. She said, I hope I'm good enough. And, and, and I, would say, I would say to you, if you feel like that, the same thing I said to her, I love you, but you're not. But Jesus is. And if you go through him the way I believe they've gone through him, you'll see them again. But more importantly, you'll see the face of a father who loves you. You'll see the face of a son who gave his life for you, who paid a price for you that you could never pay on your own. And so down here, if there's no salvation, there's no, or if there's no suffering, there's no salvation. But in the same way, in far as your life goes, it's exactly the same, just a different couple letters. No suffering. If you wanna be able to make it out of this life alive, like know the suffering. And I'm talking about two folds of it here. I gotta know the suffering of Jesus. And I've gotta become so uniquely familiar with this guy didn't live a rainbow unicorn life. He knew and experienced suffering. And then know your own. And know that the God who allowed a crown of thorns to be put on his son's head, allowed beard follicles to be pulled out, allowed people to punch him in the face while he was blindfolded, allowed nails to go through his wrists and his feet, that that father did not allow that son to go through any bit of suffering that was one iota further than he actually had to. And so that means for you and me, he's not wasting your hurt. He's not up there going like, ah, turn the dial up to about nine or 10. Let's see how much they can take. No, no. Know that your suffering is to lead you back to the great high priest where you can approach with boldness and confidence. See, we get this all throughout the gospels. There's, there's, there's so many of these stories in the gospel that show people in the middle of their brokenness. That is actually the people that is Jesus is most attracted to. And those are the people where no matter how broken or how messed up, how broken you feel like you've fallen off right now. Remember, there's stories like this. There's story of the centurion who's got a sick child and he goes to Jesus. And, and, and there's a story of another one of these leaders in the temple and he goes to Jesus and he says, hey, my servant is at home and he's sick. And Jesus is going, cool, let's go heal him. And the centurion goes, no, I boss people around and I know you can boss people around, just heal him. And the guy gets healed. There's a story of Jairus. He's got a sick daughter at home. She's getting ready to die. And Jesus is like, cool, let's go to your house and heal him. And this guy's like, okay, cool, let's go. While they're on the way there, this woman comes up and she's been suffering from a, a woman bleeding issue for years and years and years. And she has this boldness in the midst of her suffering to come up, fight through the crowd on hands and knees, nose in the dirt, reaches forward and grabs a hem of his garment and she's healed. There's this guy named Bartimaeus and he's just blind as a bat. And he hears, because his ears work, Jesus is coming by. And he screams out from the roadside, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus pulls him in and says, what do you want? <laughs> and that's the guy's looking this way and Jesus is standing right here. It's super funny. <laughs> Jesus, and they got, Jesus, I'm over here. <laughs> and he heals him. There's a, the story that we all know of a guy broken and paralyzed, his arms and legs, quadriplegic guy whose friends lower him down through the roof. And he's there in front of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He says, your sins are forgiven. And then he heals him. He says, get your mat and get up and walk. There's a story in the gospels where a widow, her only son is being wheeled out of the house on a stretcher. Her only son is dead, dead. And Jesus has it said, the Bible says he has sympathy on him and he heals him. There's a story of a woman who was caught up in sexual sin and addiction 
named Mary Magdalene. And she's essentially a slave in someone who's really important's house. And Jesus is invited to this really important who's who's house. And Mary Magdalene takes the only thing of worth and value that she had on her, an alabaster jar of oil, and she breaks it in a desperate attempt to finally be accepted by one man for who she really is. She pours it on him and anoints him and finds true salvation, true forgiveness there at the feet of Jesus. There's another story about a father who's no coincidence again, only son is being controlled by evil spirit and time after time, this evil spirit throws him down to the ground. Every now and then it's trying to throw him into fires and it's, it has these times where it wells up and the disciples try to get this thing to come out of this boy and Jesus shows up and he says, this can only happen through prayer and fasting. That is what I'm all about. I've been out in the garden. I've been out in the wilderness. I've been praying and fasting, screaming and crying to my father. I have the utmost connection to him and Jesus casts out this evil spirit of a son and he was brought there by a desperate father. Another story, you see 5,000 people standing on the shore, desperately hungry. And Jesus says, far be it for me to send you away with a full head and heart and things to think about, but with an empty stomach. And he takes two loaves and some fish and he feeds the entire crowd. What do you see on display here? You see time and time again, people in their most desperate, broken even fully embodying sin and depravity, people that everybody else was like, get away from here, you're unclean, you're a whore, you're messed up, you're a tax collector, you're a traitor. All these people over and over again who like, don't let this, them just be people in Bible stories, find yourself in there, all of these people. What happens when they come to Jesus? John six thirty seven. all those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And what you need to understand is Jesus is most attracted to you when you are most broken because he knows that that is when you are most in need. Parents, you know what this is like. You got one kid at the house who's having a crazy allergic reaction to getting stung by a bee. You're not worried if the other one is playing on an iPad at the time that all this is going down, right? You got a kid who's going to anaphylactic shock. It's a desperate moment. I gotta go, where's the EpiPen? Jesus is the same way. The more broken you are, the more desperate he is to come and find you. Receive the grace that he has and receive the salvation that is yours. And the salvation, what is it salvation from? Salvation from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. The penalty of sin is death. He frees you from that. The power of sin is still being in bondage and he gives us that freedom. And the presence of sin is this broken world. He says, listen, I have come to bring you eternal salvation even from the place where sin reigns down here. There's gonna come a day where you will no longer suffer. There's gonna come a day where there will be no more tears. There's gonna come a day where I will wipe all of this away and we will be back how it's supposed to be, me, you, the Father, forever in eternity. So what does that mean for us down here? 
If suffering is a sign of solidarity with him, let us suffer well. What does suffering well look like? It looks like suffering with him. You're ready to sing a song as we close today. It's called Son of Suffering. The reason we're ending there is because that is exactly who he was and he invites you in, in the midst of your suffering, come and suffer well with me and trust me, there will come a day where all these things will work together for your good and my Father's glory.